the warriors returned in time for the fall festival. They brought with them stories of the other tribes they had routed and the many horses they had taken as their prize. For the duration of the festival, the two villages became one, and the two chiefs sat next to each other. They heard and settled grievances, wed young couples and divorced others, and told stories of the year past as it was coming to its end. When it was time to look to the year ahead, the war chief told the peace chief that he would have his warriors hunt all day and night until they had enough meat for everyone in the village. The warriors set out on the plains and saw a herd of axes, but when chased, the large deer easily outpaced their horses. They found the tracks of the Nilgai but could not agree on whether they were recent enough to pursue. The warriors climbed a slight grade from which they could gain a better view, and in the distance they saw a saunder of sixty hogs rooting slowly through the grass. They argued about their approach because they knew the hogs would scatter upon sight of them and then be a danger lurking in the grass around them. None wanted a hog's six-inch cutters to eviscerate his horse and then himself, so they devised a plan to stampede the hogs toward the canyon and down its sheer walls. The fall would kill most of the hogs, and those remaining would be easy to deal with. The warriors formed a half-circle, placing the hogs between them and the canyon ledge, and moved slowly, cautiously, making themselves visible without exciting the hogs. Unconcerned, the beasts rooted in the direction away from the riders and toward the sheer canyon walls. When they were within 500 yards of the canyon, the warriors began to ride back and forth and yell and throw rocks to irritate the hogs. None shot his bow for fear of wounding one of the beasts and leading the saunder to charge in his direction. Only when the hogs began to trot steadily toward the canyon did the warriors drive toward them. When the hogs picked up the pace toward their deaths, the emboldened warriors rode faster, yelling loudly, ushering them on. Caroline watched this escapade from afar and wondered what stories of bravery and cunning the warriors would deliver along with the hogs. She knew they would not admit to running them off the cliff wall and would likely not agree who was the strongest or more accurate with his bow, so they would all conspire to be heroes of their fiction. She would hunt on her own. She had a lance strapped across her back and on top of that her bow and forty arrows. She lashed to the side of her horse, the poles of a travoy, and jute rope, with which she would tie down a large, field-dressed animal. She ignored the Nilgai tracks, which were at least a week old, and rode west to see if there were any axes who had not been run off. She could tell from the way their hooves had hit the ground that the herd was sufficiently bothered by the warriors and moving fast. Caroline, in turn, pushed her horse further than she would have had to if the plains had been unmolested. She pushed past a slight rise and then another, and kept reasoning that the next would be the last, and that she would find the herd and be able to deliver an axis to the chiefs, alongside the broken bones of the greasy hogs. Her prediction eventually came true and over what was many times the next rise, between it and the lowering sun, Caroline saw what at first she thought were the Nilgai. She lowered her gaze and squinted and reconciled what she saw with the memory of an old photograph in the sheriff's office. He had let her hold the picture, 
and had told her about the greatest beast of the plains, which was as gone as electricity and airplanes and all such things. And yet, there they were. They were not the blanket across the plains which the sheriff had described, but there were a thousand of them, slowly grazing in the sea of grass. She was far off, and Caroline knew that if she charged, they would stampede and ultimately disappear into the sea. She was far from the canyon. The sun was steadily retiring, and the bison held too great a starting distance for her horse to catch them. She slowly turned back the way she came and dismounted at the far side of her horse. She pulled the lance from the sheath across her back and used it to guide the horse's reins as she hid behind him. The bison took note of the grazing horse and then, because there was nothing to fear, turned their heads back to the grass and continued to graze. Caroline moved the horse slowly and indirectly so the bison did not know whether it was coming toward them or they toward it. Only when she was within a hundred yards did one of the larger bulls take serious notice and then a fence at the encroachment. He did not like the idea of sharing the prairie grass and snorted at the horse. Caroline used her lance to turn the head of her horse away as a sign of deference, but the agitated bull saw this as weakness and shivered from front to back the muscles of his body sending dust into the air. He snorted and drew at the ground with his forehoof and trotted toward the horse. As he came closer, Caroline estimated that his head was held six feet in the air and his massive body exceeded that of six axis bucks, thousands of pounds. His snorting upset the horse who yet feared and trusted Caroline and followed her direction. The horse did not move, and this angered and confused the bull until he saw the first arrow coming from beneath the horse's chestnut belly. At 40 yards, shot straight, Caroline could loose three arrows before the first struck the bull in his chest. He saw the first one coming and did not know what it was, but then felt the snake bite of its sharp tip, and then another, and then another. He lowed and reared his head sideways and turned to run as Caroline swung herself under her horse and after him. At his cry of pain and anger, the herd launched into a stampede. Caroline knew her quarry would run to the stampede and try to hide within the protection of the uninjured, who would close in on him like a scabbing wound and ferry him to safety. The injuries caused by the arrows healing over time. She needed to puncture his great lungs as he sprinted toward the herd to steal the breath that powered his legs. At 30 yards, Caroline began to pierce his sides with arrows. Her horse flew her across the grass. She easily landed a dozen arrows in the left side of the bull and then kicked the horse to cut his right, where she landed six more. All were placed midway up the bull's heaving sides, behind his ribs, and angled so as to pass through one lung and hopefully catch the other with their tips. The bull began to slow, then caught himself and sprinted toward the herd, which was pulling away. Caroline saw him stumble and pulled the quarter horse back. The bull pushed one last time, and then drawing loud but shallow breaths, he stopped and watched his herd grow smaller in the distance, blending into the grass sea. 
The bull turned his head slowly, and when he was looking at her, Caroline would make out the blood running from his mouth and dripping from his belly. She could see no blood on his dark hide, but the dripping blood the shafts ran deep. From forty yards, he stared at her, telling her that he had more than enough in him to take her and her horse. At this distance, they could not outrun him, and her arrows, which would kill him over hours, were worthless in the twelve seconds it would take him to reach her. Caroline dropped her prized bow and quivered to the ground and pulled the lance from her back. She also dropped a lassoed rope to drag behind her in case she was knocked to the ground. Her horse whimpered nervously as the bull's stare weighed down on them both. When he lowered his head to charge, Caroline kicked the horse hard and they committed, diving off opposite cliffs. He was intent on driving his horns into the horse's side and trampling the rider. She on running the lance between his great forward ribs and into the large arteries that gripped his heart. The sound of the stampeding herd had faded across the grass sea. It was silent, and the wind was the only observer of the girl whose one hand was painted with venom and the other a rattle. Squeezing the shaft of a lance, driving toward a beast more than ten times her size, his muscles cramped and his mind dizzied from the lack of oxygen. He saw her as the end, the snake that bit him that would now be stomped to pieces in the dirt. The wind lit a hawk, and from above it saw them come together. And Caroline deftly move her horse at the last instant and throw herself to its side so the bison's horn passed above her, and her lance up and into his side, crushing a rib as it entered, snapping. Caroline carried between the beasts and then hitting the ground. When she awoke, it was dark. Her horse had run off but then returned for its rider and waited near but not close to the bison. After the lance had entered its side and broken, the bison had fallen fully onto it and now lay impaled and no longer wheezing. Caroline stood and with her stone knife set to work. She assembled the travoy and tied it off to the horse. She lightened the bull by leaving his entrails in the grass save the heart and the liver, which she placed in a buckskin pouch. She did not like to leave so much of the bull on the plains, but her horse would have a hard enough time pulling the travoy as it was. The many steps the horse took were a great effort, but it, like she, would not stop until they got to their destination. By the time they had descended the canyon walls, the festival had been going on for hours. The villages were lit by torches, and the people danced in joyous and unrestricted ways. When they saw her coming, the people saw mostly the whites of her eyes, because the dried blood of the bison covered her face, matted her hair, and darkened her hands and arms up to her shoulders. They assumed it was Caroline's blood, until she reached, and then past them, dragging the travoy, and on it the largest beast of the plains, slain at the girl's hands and delivered by her alone. Each of them stood speechless and awestruck as one who sees something believed to be impossible. The air of the festival led them to assume God was involved, and some dropped to their knees, 
Caroline could not see them and only saw the lights around her, torches and stars, and was glad that she was home and only looked ahead to the center of the village where her father was hosting the war chief. They both sat outside her father's tent, flanked by many warriors. They had eaten the roasted pork and heard the stories of the hunt and had moved on to boastfully planning the raids they would make in the year to come. As Caroline came into view in the further-off torchlight, on her horse and caked in blood, their talking slowed. As her horse entered their own firelight dragging the great bull behind her, they could no longer speak. Surrounded by their silence, she dismounted, walked up to the seated chiefs, and, kneeling before them, produced the massive liver and the great heart of the bull. She laid out two squares of buckskin, and, before the peace chief, who nourishes the people, she placed the liver. Then, looking him in the eyes for the first time since he had dragged her by her hair to the creek and pronounced her as nothing, she laid the strong heart at the feet of the war chief, who protects the people. Caroline lowered her eyes in deference and then stood and unburdened her horse, loosening the jute ropes and letting the travoy and her gift fall to the ground. She barely had the strength to mount her horse, but she threw her weight and made it look effortless. As her bloodied and exhausted frame rode out of their firelight, they remained silent, as unable to speak as when they first saw her. You've been listening to New West Hill Country. You can find more episodes, audiobooks, art, and social channels at newwestseries.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please leave a review and share this. New West Hill Country is independent, original storytelling, and we appreciate your supporting us by spreading the word.